Greetings, mortals. Welcome to Fatal Fortunes. I'm Al. I'm Nathan. Join us for a deep dive into some of history's most fascinating characters who live dangerously beautiful lives and whose legacies haunt us today. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Fatal Fortunes. This time, we're doing a little mini-sode, you know, a little midweek mini-sode to break up some of our longer episodes, and it is on the late, great Betty Davis, who just passed away. Of course, um, when Nathan approached me about this topic, Nathan said, let's do Betty Davis, and I said, do you mean Bette Davis from Lowell? Different one. This is Betty with a Y. <laughs> yep. And I and then of course it, like you can see the list of Betty Davis is on Wikipedia and I'm like, mm-hmm. but Bette Davis is the only one that's dead. Betty Davis is still alive. And then he's like, no, she died like an hour ago. Dude. Today, yeah. So Betty Davis, um, she was born in ye old 1944. You know, we've talked about some of the World War Two years before and um, battles on battles on battles, wars on wars on wars, meetings on meetings on meetings. Um, so it's kind of hard to parse out, you know, any of the other things going on. Um, during the Second World War, but we tried our best. So, in 1944, FDR won his fourth term. He's not going to complete that one, though. The Afghan tribal revolts begin. The most recent eruption of Mount Vesuvius occurred. The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet debuted. Sounds like something, you know, our parents must have liked. The St. Louis Browns won the World Series for the first and the only time. Speaking of, I say this every summer, but this summer is my Red Sox summer, so pencil that in your calendar. Rooting for the Sox. I'm not rooting for the Sox. I'm going to Fenway Park, um, spending, you know, all the money I have in my pocket on Kettle One Vodka and Lemonade and leaving before the game ends because I ran out of money. The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams premiered in New York City, and another one I didn't include was No Exit premiered in Paris, Nazi-occupied Paris, but I was like, ah, two plays, eh. Here we are anyway. Gandhi was released from jail in India. The Bretton Woods Conference ends with agreements signed to set up the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, and the International Monetary Fund. Uh, I mentioned Bretton Woods because it is a place I have been before. Um, and, you know, they let you sit in the room where they sign these papers. It's pretty cool. They have, like, this one little smoking section where you find out that if um, the building catches fire, it's going down in 12 minutes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. But they have amazing lobster mac and cheese. Like, my dad and I went up, smoked some weed in the car, and then we just ate some lobster mac and cheese and passed out at, like, 730. <laughs> Excellent. But, yeah, super fun. Definitely haunted. I shot one of my first rolls of film there, too. Warren Buffett gets into the newspaper business at age 14. And some births this year are Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page, boxer Joe Frazier, Angela Davis, Queen of the Universe, Alice Walker, Jerry Springer, Diana Ross, George Lucas, Frank Oz from Sesame Street, Grover, Tommy Smith, the 1968 200-meter sprinter winner who did the iconic Black Power salute at the Olympics. You know, Urban Outfitters has probably put that on many a t-shirt. Yeah, truly. And I remember um, it inspired me to do the Black Power Fist when I walked across the stage at graduation. Wow. Yep. My parents were so proud. 
they're like they got the kids not basic some deaths that went down was edgar monk the guy who painted the scream and you know of course um so many people in the concentration camps and fighting in the second world war also died this year but none of that is what we came here to talk about today because we came here to talk about betty davis hot girl baddie of you know the latter half of the 20th century so nathan take it away all right so betty gray mabry was born on july 16th 1944 in durham north carolina from a very young age she was really interested in music she of course loved her parents and her mother and grandmother were the ones that really put her on to singers like ma rainey bb king jimmy reed and elmore james Actually, uh, I do want to say that a lot of sources say that it was uh, her grandmother who inspired her. However, in one of her songs, she is listing all of these influences and references her great-grandmother. So maybe it was both of them. Maybe oh, it was so one of them. But nevertheless, has yeah. a lot of maternal influence. My great-grandmother influence. is the one who um, put me on to Billie Holiday and stuff, too. So relatable yeah. content. And this was all happening while staying on her grandmother's farm in Reedsville, North Carolina. She started singing around this time at 10 years old, and then by 12, she'd already written her first full song, I'm Going to Bake That Cake of Love. There's actually a really funny uh, story in the documentary about her, They Say I'm Different, where one of her childhood friends, I believe it's Connie Portis, says that she would call her all the time and um, said that she had a new song, and Connie would just, like, leave the phone to do something else and then five minutes later betty's still singing like these were oh epics God. that she was writing at 12. in her own words these blues musicians had the pureness that she was looking for honest stories put to music in the mid to late 1950s betty's father got a job as a steel worker so the family moved up to homestead pennsylvania right outside of pittsburgh she grew up there in homestead all the while singing for all the neighbors to hear and when she was 16 she graduated early and moved to New York to live with her aunt. There she enrolled in the New York Fashion Institute of Technology to study apparel design. You know, many a, many a bad bitch has gone to FIT. FIT. While studying, Betty would also model for work, appearing in Seventeen, Ebony, and Glamour magazines. She would also attend a lot of live music performances in clubs like The Bitter Inn and Cafe Gogo. Although destined to be a future funk screamer, Betty was absolutely a folky at this time, stating about the music, quote, there was a certain purity in folk music, just like in the blues, unquote. She also did get to know musicians like Jimi Hendrix and Sly Stone, but her friendship with Lou Courtney is what got her recording first. The single they made was entitled The Cellar, although it is very unfortunate that it seems to be lost to time. Uh, with that an interview sucks. that she did she's even having trouble remembering what year it was even made and i wasn't able to find any recordings of it must have been before 1964 though because it was at that year that she released two singles get ready for betty and i'm gonna get my baby back her first real professional gig occurred a few years later after writing a song for the chambers brothers called uptown to harlem in 1967 their album was a major success, but Betty wasn't quite ready to leave her modeling career behind. After all, the money was good, but fulfillment from that, not so much. She stated in 
album notes that, quote, I didn't like modeling because you didn't need brains to do it. It's only going to last as long as you look good, unquote. As it turned out, that modeling career was not going to go on much longer. She had a short relationship with trumpet player Hugh Masakela, recording several songs for the label he was signed to, um, with him arranging them. Only two of them were released, Live, Love, Learn, and It's My Life. By the time that relationship ended, Betty had her eye on a different trumpet player, Miles Davis. She initially saw him at famed jazz club The Blue Note and immediately started taking a liking to his playing and his shoes, cool and gray and suede. She said, I've got to find that dude with the cool shoes. No idea. Me when someone has rare Doc Martens on. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) Yes, truly. I mean, he was very fashionable, and she initially had no idea who he was, even though he'd been playing for a couple of decades and uh, was almost 20 years her senior, so I guess no wonder she didn't know him. She was 24 when he was 42, and that's when they married after their on-and-off courtship, resulting in Miles proposing in 1968. I just think, like, what would I have in common with a 42-year-old man right now. I know, it's almost twice your age. Like, Blech. very... They'd be trying to talk to me about, like, you know, voting in, like, the 2004 election or something, and I'd be like, yeah. gaga. I have no idea what you're talking about. They're like, oh my god, you don't remember 9-11? No, like, I don't. Get no, over it. No, <laughs> I don't. I remember seeing it on the box TV or something. Like, mm-hmm. Come on. I had a radio. I didn't even have... <laughs> just <laughs> vaguely remember the radio announcement. <laughs> This was a really short-lived marriage, but it is important to reflect on the profound influence Betty had. And I do think it was uh, a more one-sided influence for the most part. Betty introduces Miles to Jimi Hendrix and other musicians who would go on to inspire that fusion sound of the 70s and 80s that Miles did pioneer. And also with her impeccable fashion sense, Miles would trade those fancy suits she initially saw him in for colorful and flowing shirts, furs, leather, kimonos, and silks. Whoa. I mean, Miles completely transformed. He's called the chameleon of music, but also of fashion. And I think it is um, very much because of Betty. Betty is featured on one of Miles' album covers entitled Files de Kilimanjaro uh, Girls of Kilimanjaro in French, which is a very transitional record from his cool jazz era to, like I said, later on, fusion. Miles did encourage Betty to continue to sing, as this marriage made her feel a tad stagnant, but his faith in her ability as a musician would influence her to release more in the coming years. However, like I said, this was a very short-lived marriage. Miles' violent tendencies really is what did it in at its end all because he thought Betty was having an affair with their mutual friend, Jimi Hendrix, something that she denied till death. So they divorced in 1969, although they did start to produce an album together in that year of marriage that had about five or so songs, and that didn't even get released until 2016. Whoa! After the divorce, uh, it is 1971, Betty moves to London to further pursue modeling. She still is writing music, and a year later, she is moving back to the Bay Area in the U.S. in 1972. And the timing's perfect. She meets Greg Errico, the drummer for Sly and the Family Stone. And he states that even though they didn't really know each other, quote, 
we got into the album pretty quick. And at the time, Jesus, I mean, the musicians that were assembled were the who's who of the Bay Area at the time. This album that they made was released in 1973. It's Betty's debut and a self-titled one. The eight-song album didn't receive a lot of critical acclaim at the time, but then again, neither did the other two that she released in the following years. The backup singer on this album, Patrice Banks, states, quote, I never did really understand her voice. She couldn't sing. I respected her songwriting. I liked her songs. I loved the tracks. And with Larry and Greg and all of them playing on it, they were all as funky as they could possibly get. And I had to respect the fact that she knew where to go to get her music done the correct way. But her voice, I never did really understand, unquote. And I have to say, uh, respectfully, that is the dumbest thing that she could have said. I, um, I, I totally disagree that this person uh, thinks that Betty can't sing. Only listening to two of her albums so far. I've got to get through the rest of the discography. But she is so talented, and as you'll see later, inspired so many other um, iconic acts. So I don't know where that quote came from. Maybe just a little jealous that, you know, she's the backup singer. Who knows? The sexual nature of the lyricism and music made for a perfect blend. People described it as rough, jagged, and yeah, like I said, I don't think perfect pitch would have sounded right. She is sliding all over these notes, and it is really, really sexy. That's probably the same kind of person who would hate, like, Janis Joplin. Mm-hmm. And actually, I do think that um, Betty Davis was a little inspired by Janis Joplin's style. I was also thinking that um, the sound of Funkadelic is also happening around this same time. So it's weird that that backup singer... Um, Patrice Banks would say that because it's not like she was the only one who was doing this style of singing. I think it was getting a lot more popular and yeah, maybe she was one of the first ones, Betty, to do this, but it definitely wasn't entirely new. The next year in 1974, she releases They Say I'm Different with a really uh, notable song, He Was a Big Freak, notably this song was alluded to be about Jimi Hendrix because one of his favorite colors was turquoise and it opens with the famous line I used to beat him with a turquoise change which is yeah hell of an opener another year later she releases the album Nasty Gal in 1975 this album cover is just as sexual as the others and unfortunately critics again are just not into it saying her image overshadows the music weird because of her lyrics being almost always about sexual relationships, her music gets banned from radio stations by the NAACP. Of this, Betty says, quote, I thought they were for the advancement of colored people, correct? But they were stopping my advancement. They were stopping me from making a living, unquote. That didn't stop college radio stations from playing her music, though. Notably, Diana Williams was a DJ at Howard University who had Betty's music in constant rotation from 1973 to 1975. Betty was also banned from performing on television. The 2021 documentary named after her second album, They Say I'm Different, has former band members recalling that this banning was mainly because after the civil rights movement of the 1960s, integration into white society was imperative and anything sexualizing African bodies, especially African women's bodies, was seen as a step backwards. Not so not... That. Yeah, so not only were critics against Betty 
but it was really difficult to get her music played anywhere except in live performance. And the performances were just as sexy, of course. Childhood friends would go to these shows and barely recognize the woman on stage. But um, she is <laughs> putting on quite a show, grinding in these short shorts and thigh-high boots. And like I said, none of her albums had major critical success. She did have two minor hits, though, reaching the Billboard Top 100. One of them being If I'm In Luck, I Might Get Picked Up and Shut Off The Lights. She also was a little more popular in Europe, as U.S. shows would often get banned or boycotted. So she did remain a cult personality. By the late 1970s, the label that she was signed to, Island Records, dropped her, and she was unable to secure another label. In 1980, Betty's father unfortunately passes away, and this is what caused her to move back home to Homestead to live with her mother. She acknowledges that this was a setback in her career, but also that it was time for it to come to an end. She kind of had the attitude of like, this is the way it is. Living in that small town, she was barely recognized, and I really couldn't find out when her mother passed away, but Betty ended up moving into a small one-bedroom apartment for senior women run by Catholic charities. She had a select group of childhood friends who she would still spend time with and be looked after by, but Betty didn't like photos or interviews and remained in reclusivity for the remainder of her life, living simply with no internet or phone or car. Wow. Whoa. A writer for the Washington Post, Keith Alexander, comments on how he had no idea how famous his neighbor, Miss Betty, was. To him, she was just the old woman walking down the street to the grocery store whose driveway he would shovel for a few dollars come wintertime. Of this unassuming life, Betty said, quote, I like that nobody knows who I am when they see me. I like to live quietly, unquote. On the morning of February 9th, 2022, Betty Davis passed away at 77 years old. Childhood friend Connie Portis said, quote, Betty was a friend, aunt, niece, and a beloved member of her community of Homestead, Pennsylvania, and of the worldwide community of friends and fans. At a time to be announced, we will pay tribute to her beautiful, bold, and brash persona. Today, we cherish her memory as the sweet, thoughtful, and reflective person she was. There is no other. Unquote. As far as Betty's legacy... It is powerful, to say the least, inspiring generations of artists including Macy Gray, Erica Badu, Jamila Woods, and Janelle Monet. I see Erica, or Betty Davis's sound in Erica Badu's Absolutely. Gig. And yeah. I think that when that documentary got released, uh, They Say I'm Different, Erica called her from one of her shows in New York. And in that documentary... Um, but she didn't the, have a phone. Because she has a home phone. She has okay. a home phone. So yeah, I was going to be like, gotcha! I know. I also thought that because in the documentary, towards the end, the former band that records all of those songs in the 70s calls her. They all get together and uh, they're like, please pick up, please pick up. And she picks up and it's amazing. Like, she's just, she's there on the other end and she's living this quiet life. And they're like, when are we going to get back together? And she's like, I am too old. At the time, she's 76. <laughs> And they're like, we'll come to you. And they really just wanted to get back together with her because none of them had really seen her in, in decades. Um, she really did keep to herself. And that, that's something that all of them say was that after the death of her father, it was really hard for her 
to get over that because he was also a very huge inspiration to her um, and she loved him very much but regardless um, she never got back really into the music scene except as stated earlier the 1968-1969 Miles Davis album that he produced with her was finally released as a collection in 2016 called The Columbia Years and there, there was also an album recorded in 1976 um, that was like the last album that she did with Island Records that was finally released in 2009 called Is It Love or Is It Desire? Finally, her close friend Danielle Maggio sang a song that she wrote and released in 2019 called A Little Bit Hot Tonight. And that is Betty Davis. Um, yeah, sex-positive funk pioneer who lived a, a really amazing life in just the a little over a decade of performing that she got to do has has such a profound impact on the music scene and i think that we'll continue to see artists inspired by her in the future and you know i think a really fun companion episode to her might be um cecily tyson mm -hmm. since her and um miles davis were going back and forth yeah it's since he was juggling them women at the same time truly well awesome Thank you so much for, you know, being inspired by her life so that we could be here today. And thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of Fatal Fortunes. We will be back next Tuesday with an episode on... I don't know yet. Surprise. Surprise! And, you know, we're lining up some guests to round out the season. So can't wait for you guys to be around for that. Remember, on Tuesdays we talk ghosts. See you next time.